Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Well, hi again, everybody. A special edition of Inside Curling. Uh, we've got Nick Adine and Oscar Eriksson coming on. They'll be representing Sweden in the Olympics. And we've got an interview in the can that we're going to uh, let you listen to. Thanks a lot to all our sponsors of Inside Curling. Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Goldline, Nestle Boost, and Meridian. Sit back, enjoy, and check out this interview. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. All right, Nick, Oscar, thank you very much for taking a little bit of time today. I appreciate it. I know you're busy with running around playing and all the other things that you have planned today, but uh, one thing I want to talk about, five-time world champ, and you've got uh, two Olympic medals in your jeans. Actually, you both do, because you're a fifth, I think, at the one, but bronze and silver. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, this will be your fourth Olympics, I think, and a chance to actually have one of each. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the first one we played, we uh, just missed medals, uh, lost to you in the semifinal. Uh, and that was really early in our careers. So just making playoffs there, uh, there was really good. And then uh, bronze the next time was maybe a little bit more disappointing. And then silver, uh, a little bit disappointing again. So I think uh, we got a lot of uh, pressure on ourselves and a lot of uh, will to win that gold. Uh, finally, it feels like we've, um, we've had two really good chances to win. Uh, and just uh, lost out in the end there. So uh, if we can win it this time, it's all good. Uh, if we don't win it this time, I think uh, it'll really sting. So uh, it's going to be an important one for all our careers and continued uh, curling after this too. You went in the exact good direction for me. I, I wanted to ask you, yes, about the pressure because and it's, it's all on yourself. Everybody else just enjoys watching you curl. So the pressure is all about inside your own brain. But then there's the other side of it. You're in the fourth Olympics. That's got to be an advantage. So in my opinion, and I want to hear your thoughts, you've got the big pressure you put on yourself, but then the advantage of being there so many times, so it's kind of familiar. Nick. Definitely, yeah. I, I think uh, we felt that the last time too, when we did really, really well. We put ourselves in a spot to, to win the Olympics. We made it to the final and um, played great the whole week. Uh, and then obviously in the final, we played a guy that played his fourth Olympics. So uh, the experience definitely showed there as well for their team. They were older and more experienced and we 
maybe had a hotter season, so to speak. We had played really well, but then uh, it's just one game. So I think um, age, experience, uh, how many times you've been at the Olympics and, and how many times you've played in the big finals, that definitely matters when you come to that final. So uh, definitely going into these Olympic Games, I think we have an advantage over what we did last time we went there and we got more experience and more stuff in our, our tool bag now. And I never even thought about asking you this one, but I just it just came to me now. And do you remember the shot? Because we had a really good game going in 2010. This is totally mm-hmm. off the wall. Do you remember the shot? It was an outturn something. Yeah, I had like a, an angle run from the center line onto like a tight corner guard that could redirect go down for possibly four, I think. Uh, really, really tough shot though. But I think it was really, really close. And so, set, yes, it was very close. Yeah, and we, and we I can felt picture it we, now actually we, in my brain. Yeah, he was talking about it few days ago yeah. oh is when that we, right when we yeah, played yeah, yeah. Uh, korea in uh, in penticton it was like oh this looks like the the shot i had in the in the semi-final against kevin yeah and yeah. i didn't even mean to even bring it up but i just thought of it just now and yeah. it, I mean, it's vivid in my mind and and i think you hit it a hair thin didn't you because then it came across the face of the rock yes i remember it we kind of we it was a bit of a sweeping error so it was really really close so we like we probably had it in our grasp but at the same time we uh, it's so hard to predict that exact angle. So even if we hit it exactly where we want to, it might not turn out the way we want to. But it was uh, it was there, and I think that was kind of what we felt we needed to do to be able to beat you guys. So we needed a big lead. We had that chance. Didn't work out that yeah. time, but I think oh, no. we, we were happy. I just happy remember just, the shot. That's all. I just remember yeah. it clear as a bell. And the reason yeah. I bring up the th- getting the three medals is going into the 2013 trials here in Canada. I remember my dad saying, you've got to win this kid. I go, well, I don't have to win it. Like, why? What do you mean? You got to get back to the Olympics and, and get that bronze. <laughs> well, no, yeah, no, dad. Like, we're not after the bronze if we get there, but he was thinking one of each. That's why I wanted to ask you about that. This is for Oscar. I actually had an, an email from a, a really good curling coach in, uh, in the U.S. Wondering how, and, and Nick and I talked about this on our podcast, how to train young people this is all for the young people in our audience the angles like how how can you train young people where to hit the thing so that it angles onto the button or it angles from the center line to where you want it to go Uh, i think it just takes a lot of time and practice angles put them up try to hit it where you think it's right see where it ends up if you're hitting it uh, too thin or too thick and put up freezes, drag effect, all that is important too, I think, with rotation, that makes a difference. So I think just throw a tons of rocks, and I think that's what we did when we were younger. Yeah. This uh, coach had his team on the pool table quite a lot, and they were actually learning being able to draw the line as to where to hit the balls. But of course, in, and you brought up a great point, Oscar, the drag effect and spin on the stone, and where you hit it isn't actually... Always right. Nope. Like it, you can draw a line through the middle of the rock and you hit it exactly there. You'd think it would be right, but depending on the turn makes quite a bit of difference, Nick. Yeah, definitely. And also the speed of the rock has an important factor because if, if you hit it at a very high speed, then you're going to like the power going into the rock is going to drag it downwards a little bit more, especially if you hit it full. So rotation and the speed has a big importance too. If you have a lot of rotation and, and less speed, the rotation will drag it sideways more. But if you have more speed, the same rotation won't have the same effect. So a lot of different components uh, to it. And I think that's where it comes in, where Oscar talks about you need to just throw a ton of it and kind of learn those different things. And as you as you go, as you make shots, as you miss shots, you 
you start to realize, oh, that didn't have the same effect as the last one, even though we hit it in the same spot. Was it the turn? Was it the rocks? Was it the ice conditions? A lot of stuff goes into it. One of the best shots um, that I've seen, and the reason was the turn you took, and you'll remember, I think, once we start talking. It was in a Grand Slam, and you were trying a raise to the good forefoot bite a button. But if you throw the outturn raise, the rock you impact is going to take the intern. Was it against curve. Mike McEwen? Yes. Yeah. And so uh, and it would have taken the intern, and, and even if you got near the center guard, it would have just curved to the boards, and you wouldn't have got it. But you took the inside, and right away, I said, I can't believe Nick is taking the intern. This is curling knowledge at its best. Most people would have thrown the outturn because it's far simpler on the straight turn to hit the nose. But with the intern, if you hit nose, you knock it back, it curls right into the button for fun. So we're talking about this on the broadcast, and you remember the shot. But I remember the discussion. I want you to talk about that a little bit for the kids uh, listening to us. Yeah, I think, um, like, obviously those shots doesn't come up a lot, uh, but I th- still think it's important to know all those details. So we kind of set up those different situations, like the drag effect, like the, the rotation and how the, you know, the rock on tap backs, especially how, how they curl after you make contact. So it really has a big, important uh, factor which turn you elect to throw. It's not just to tap it where you want to tap it because it's going to curl after it hits. One way or the other. Yeah. So it always and- takes the opposite turn. Yeah, so that, that way you can choose which way it's going to turn and exactly where you want to hit it so that it, after it curls, you're still guarding the whole rock. Because I think some people uh, were very confused why you would take the inside-out turn. It's far more difficult mm-hmm. until, of course, you made it perfect. And, then, and yep. then we showed it a whole bunch of times, the replay, <laughs> how that rock curled right into the button, and you made it actually easy yep. because, of course, you had lots of forefoot when it's curling into it. Plus, it becomes more natural maybe that way too because then you get the same kind of curl that you would on a draw to the button. So for the sweepers to, because especially if it's a long tap back, then it might be difficult to know how much speed the next rock will will get from the tap. So that way it kind of makes it more of a normal draw to the button kind of thing. Right, visually. Yeah. yeah. Oscar, I got, first I wanted to ask you how you got into curling. Because Sweden, curling's not a massive sport in Sweden. No, you're right. Uh, for me, it was a family thing. I had two old, older brothers started through school. So, uh, so yeah. not your mom and dad? Not, not- no, they started playing with, uh, with my brothers. So never played curling until uh, my oldest brother, Anders, started playing. So I got pushed in <laughs> to curling through that. Yeah. So with all the success that Sweden's had over quite a few years now on the women's side and the men's side, uh, especially Paya, of course, and Annette, of course, and, and so on, so many, I would like your thoughts on, I guess, it, it's difficult to grow the game in Sweden for some reason, even with the, the vast amount of trophies that are in the trophy case and medals. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just such a small sport, and we have other big sports in the country, football, hockey, floorball, bandy, so many other sports. Floorball. Floorball, it's huge in, in, in Sweden, but it's not it's very big. Is it kind of like hockey? Is it a hockey yeah, stick? Yeah, uh, indoor. You have a plastic ball with holes in it. Uh, so it's a fast-paced kind of uh, hockey with uh, normal shoes on. It's big in Switzerland too and Finland and a little bit in Russia and Norway. So it's mostly European countries, but Rasmus was playing it when he was a kid. Do you wear padding? Uh, no. Ooh, that white ball sting like... <laughs> it, it stings, but it's uh, it's not as heavy as a puck or uh, like a bandy ball. Uh, so it's it just stings for for the fast moment, but not. Obviously, I have to bring up a point. You guys have been outspoken about the new rules, the potential new rules. They're not new rules yet, but the things are going to try at the World Championships. Um, and I'll ask you both: the no tick zone, 
how do you feel about that? For me, that's the rule I think is the best to try out of the, the three they want to try. We've tried it at the slams and I think it's, it's fun. It makes it more offensive or offense. Creates uh, opportunities to steal every end if you want to. So it's more of a skins game format with that no tick zone. But if I had to choose one rule, that's the rule I would keep out of the three. The advantages of, of no tick zone. Yeah, definitely. Then uh, <clears throat> the, the team with uh, Hammer, it, it's not a gimme to win anymore. Uh, so then that changes the strategy for maybe the, the two, three ends coming into the last end as well. So a lot of teams now, they start to tick the, the guards even in the sixth end or maybe even the fourth end to just make sure they score in the even ends. And because coming home to the eighth end with Hammer and Tide, uh, like on the men's side, top teams there, I think, um, are probably 93, 94% to win. So it's almost already over. If, if you get tied to the last end with Hammer, the game is over if the ice is good enough. Yeah, and that's where say. the tick zone, all of a sudden the TVs don't all turn one time across the entire world. Because <laughs> that's obviously the concern, right? Is yep. it all, all yeah, of a sudden? Yeah, if the lead makes both ticks, then you kind of have to bet that the game is already over. Yeah, um, you, you, sometimes it, it isn't, obviously, but, but the percentages are just too high to have any more excitement in the game if the tick, tick shots are made, so... I think that for me, that would be the, the better rule change of the three. Uh, I'm still not sure I like it because you kind of have, you've played to get that advantage too, but it's not as fun to watch if, if it's an open last end for the win. Four minutes per end and f- uh, for the first half and then four minutes, 15 seconds. Second half, Nick first. Yeah, me personally, I, I don't like it at all, to be honest. I, I can't really see... Um, anything good come out of it to be honest when we tried it at the world cup in in china for me personally i didn't hear one single player have anything positive to say about it it, it kind of made the game that a lot of ends became simpler ends simpler calls you have to rush to the shot and use more weight just peel the rock out instead of trying to make something with it so for me just to gain the effect of watching like the skip have 10 seconds left on the clock to me that doesn't really add anything to the sport of curling it's it's not a fast-paced sport. It's more like strategy and, and kind of uh, interesting uh, ends and situation. Uh, and, and I think most people that watch curling, they, they like that kind of uh, thought process behind the curling, the game of curling. So I, I think the being under time pressure, for me at least, it doesn't really add anything, unfortunately. Oscar, do you think that uh, the four minutes per end could compel teams to... Uh to maybe gamble in the first couple of ends more than at current? Because it's, I'm not sure why people blank the first two almost always. Maybe to bank time, maybe not. That's what I'm trying to ask. And we'll maybe get more rocks in play to start the game so we don't lose viewers early. Uh, maybe. It could, could go that way. It could also go the other way, that when you have a, an option of going offense or defense, and then you look at the clock and you're like, oh, we only have 2.45 left with five rocks to play. Let's play the simple shot so we don't lose the end and maybe lose the game if we lose the end. (laughs) So I think it's going to go more towards that than people throwing a bunch of guards and going all in from the get-go. Could happen, but I think it's going to be more of a defense game uh, because teams don't want to lose the game in the first, second, or third end. Because when we played it, uh, the World Cup years, or that year in China and Sweden, we were in trouble one end against Norway in the first 
first game in in China, and we were looking at a, a shot for Nicholas either playing a tough double or maybe a freeze not to give up four. So we were in trouble, and then the time ran out. So like, oh, so you didn't get okay. the throw? No, we missed. So they had an open draw for five. So the game is over. But in that moment, if you have the time, you can discuss it and you can figure out the the speed of the ice and take the decision. Is giving up two okay if we make the double? Should we try to freeze, gamble to lose five, but we can also steal or force them? And then you got to make a rush the decision and you could lose the game out of that. So well, no if people like that, well, yeah, that's it, good. It's for sure that the, the World <laughs> Curling Federation and, and, and no one would want to see any sport and curling being one of them go more defensive. Yeah, No, no, no sport in the world wants to, to go in the direction of more defensive. That's for sure. No extra ends. And then uh, four different scoring situations. Not two, three, two, one, zero, depending if you win or lose the draw of the button. The size of the change. Like, what, what does that mean to the sport of curling in your mind, Nicholas? Yeah, I, I think it could mean much more than we think about when we first hear the rule. It's so kind of uh, easy to just think, well, that's not a, not a huge change, uh, maybe. But I think it's going to add stuff into curling that we don't want into curling because it's a lot about sportsmanship. And I think with the tied game, if you have a, a few teams in the middle that are close to the playoffs in the end, you will see tied games for securing points for both teams. And I think that's going to be inevitable. It's like that is going to happen. And I don't think we want that into, into the sport of curling because it's a lot about sportsmanship, kind of like golf and yeah, th- those kind of sports. But you will see a lot of stuff like that happen. And so I, I think that's the worst part of it. It'll be bad for the sport of curling in the long run if that happens at the Olympics that a game or two or three in the end of the round robin will get tied. It doesn't have to be... 100% on purpose maybe, but you maybe know you won't take as many risks because both teams are happy with one point or two points. Um, so I think that's the dangerous part of it. And, and then um, short term, I think it's going to uh, change the strategy a lot as well because uh, obviously the game now can um, uh, be tied. Uh, same as the Connell Cup, we played it a, a lot of times there. And when you're happy to tie the game, then it, to 80% or more is a tied game. I want to go back to your guys' training a little bit and, uh, and, pre- and preparation for, for the Olympic Games. Obviously, you've got quite a few bond spiels. You've been playing quite a lot lately. But when it comes to the last half of December, Oscar, and, uh, and January, what's your schedule look like? And, and, and not just your curling schedule, but even your personal schedule, so that when you get to Beijing, you're mentally and physically as prepared as you can be. What's that look like to you? December, it's going to be quite calm, like no competitions for us uh we're gonna play a lot now uh, october november and november with uh, european championships and then december it's basically us gonna be practice see family have christmas celebrate the new year and be as ready as you can for the last competitions in, in january are you comfortable with that like, that's not very much play yeah, I think uh, normally for, for the world cha- championships, we always have like six or seven weeks off uh, before that final stretch. And then you um, start with the Worlds or maybe one event before Worlds. And then you got the players in the Champions Cup. And, and that's a pretty long tour for us. So we kind of like to have the, the time off. And then I, uh, with the qualification rounds for all the all the other countries too, uh, for, for the world championships, there are not many events to play in February and March. So it's kind of a natural break in our schedule uh, and we've turned it into a positive thing. Obviously, we're 
usually come to the world championships in very good form. So hopefully it can work the yes, same. You do. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully for the Olympics, we're kind of thinking it, it, it might be a really good um, thing for us. Just more time with friends and family, uh, do some extra practice and training and uh, go, go back to, to the gym a little bit more and just peak form mentally and physically and curling wise, obviously. So uh, doing a, a really good tour now is a really important first step to be able to have a long break like that if we have a bad tour now we don't do results now then that break would be more frustrating and maybe you want to play another event to kind of see that you're uh, on track so making good results uh, in the slams now will be important for us for to, to be able to have that break with confidence and come back for the break with confidence guys thank you very much for taking the time really appreciate it and good good luck thank you thank you so much Another great inter- interview. I really like that guy, Kevin uh, Nicodine. He's got lots to say. He's got an opinion. Certainly an eclectic guy with, with everything he's done to become a great curler. No Olympic gold yet for him, uh, so maybe this is the year. Uh, your thoughts, Kevin, on what they had to say? Well, I think that's a really good point. Uh, Nick will be <laughs> trying real hard to get that gold medal at the uh, at the Olympic Games in his pocket. You know, I, I, I really enjoy talking to Nick. Um, we talk a lot about uh, about angles, about how to figure out the angles on the great big pool table called the curling sheet. Nick, a great pool player himself, and uh, figuring out drag effect and which turn to throw on which takeouts and why and runbacks and and uh, and all of that. I remember watching Nick as a as a kid practicing, and he would throw just I don't even know how many. I'd say dozens and dozens and dozens of of runbacks again and again and again and again. He really wanted to perfect that, and he, I think he probably has close to to perfected it. And if if he hasn't, Oscar has <laughs> a third. So I really enjoy talking to those guys about that type of thing. He thinks kind of the uh, we think a lot alike as far as uh, as the angles of our wonderful sport and how to figure out exactly where to hit things. Mm-hmm. And and that that is a really big part of of our game at the highest level. I'm, I'm amazed, Kevin, when I listen to that interview, it's not the first time I've recognized this, how you guys, yourself included, and, and him and other curling teams, they can remember like a certain specific shot from freaking 15 events ago. You guys are talking, remember that in the sixth end when you, it, it's incredible, <laughs> the memory. Especially if you missed it, Jim. Especially, right. especially if you missed it. <laughs> That's right. And, and and it's not 15 events. You, you, you still remember it 15 years later. Right. It won't get later. out of my brain. Yeah, you remember the bad ones. And there's lots of those, right, that you poor curlers have to go through. Warren, uh, what, what do you, you, you heard the interview, of course. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, those two guys are amazing. They're so methodical in how they approach things. And same as Bruce Mowat, they they analyze everything. And that's fabulous. We need people in a sport that are going to analyze things and not just react from emotion. And I think everything they had to say makes sense. They realize the tick zone is something that there's a problem. We've got to try and figure out what, some way of fixing it. Um, and maybe the tick zone rule would be the answer. They're looking at the timing thing and not seeing a problem there, I think, to some degree. But on the other side of the coin, I think we have to, as we're moving forward, these games have to be finished in a maximum of two and a half hours. And whether it's an eight-hand game or a ten-hand game, whatever we're going to do, that's going to have to be the goal. So we've got to do something to reach that point. And uh, I think we have to remember as well, those of us who are 
hardened to the game of curling are prepared to tolerate time delays while people make uh, a lot of decisions rather than making them quickly and keeping the game moving. So I, I think there's a whole area there that they understand, but they're not sure the current uh, suggestion is a solution. Same thing with the tide thing. They they see it, but they're not sure what we're proposing is, is a solution. So I think those are the kind of guys we need in curling. They're very intelligent. They analyze things and they look at how things can maybe be done in a better way. Uh, great job, Kev, uh, get, getting those interviews uh, with Oscar and Nick Dean. We're going to watch for them in the Olympics, of course. And thanks for uh, everybody for listening. A big thank you to all our sponsors, Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Goldline, Nestle Boost, and Meridian for bringing you this special edition of Inside Curling. Send us an email, insidecurling at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We read a lot of them. Thanks a lot to Rod Paulson, of course, for handling our Facebook group and Facebook page. His company is In-House Strategies. See you later, boys. See you, Kevin. See you. Thanks, Jim.